Um, so Carrie is, uh, has really stepped up and said, hey, I want to be the face of Mercy Hill, and uh, it's awesome what, we're, what they're doing down there. And we get to participate with them and just loving people. And uh, it's one of those things, if you've never done it, you're kind of walking and going, do I really want to pack boxes? And do I want to really talk to people who are homeless and, and impoverished? And yeah, you do, because you walk away and you're like, I've been such an idiot thinking selfishly. And uh, <clears throat> the ministry that God has... Uh, as he's been doing down there through the church and through that ministry, uh, awesome. So Sherry and um, um, why am I blanking on his name? Old all, Sherry's husband, Ricky. Ricky and Sherry—they're an amazing couple, and they're going to come probably hang out with us here in a few weeks. But um, Monday mornings, Tuesday mornings—you don't have to do both. You can pick one. They can just really use your help. And then also we as a church also financially come alongside of them and help them out. And we buy boxes and hangers and stuff like that. So it's awesome. The city of Phoenix uh, has so much food that they don't want to throw away. They, they leverage Mercy Hills ministry and just the boxes of food that don't go to waste, that go to people that really need them. It's amazing how they have this thing all organized. And so wonderful, wonderful opportunities. So connect with Carrie, see Carrie, text Carrie, whatever it, can, it means to get more hands and feet down there, awesome. So, and if you need a, a pastor permission slip to get, to get off of work, I'll sign that for you. So uh, you guys didn't know there was such a thing, did you? It's like, my pastor said I could take the day off. Like, I will give you that spiritual note, all right? So Pastor Scott says I need a mental health day. Go serve the poor. I'll do it for you. So uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. We get to continue in Peter's sermon, which uh, remember what I told you? It was, it's about a five-minute sermon. I said don't get any ideas. So that's still true today, all right? Uh, don't get any thoughts in your mind that, you know, God's going to answer your prayer for shorter messages. So we're in it for the long haul. Peter's sermon probably went longer than five minutes because verse 40 says, and many other things Peter said that are not recorded here. So just so you guys know, you got the cliff note version. Yay! Acts 2 is where we're going to be. And I love how Peter uh, focuses us on the main thing. We all need to keep the main thing in mind. Here's the main thing all the times, Jesus. All right? Write that down. The main thing is Jesus. It is never not Jesus. Any English teachers so mad at me right now because I use a double negative? Always Jesus. Always Jesus. So Peter, preaching last week that we looked at, remember he was talking about Joel and prophecy, and we're all like, what's he talking about? And hopefully we made sense of that. He brings it back home to what the, the, the audience then the audience today needs to focus on, that's Jesus. So today we're going to have this elevated discussion about Christ. I love, uh, of course, Lewis, uh, just heads up, there's going to be a lot of Lewis and a lot of Bono today in today's message, okay? Two of the best theologians of the 20th and 21st century, Bono and Lewis, good company. So um, Lewis, in his famous work, The Chronicles of Narnia, specifically in the book The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, has this amazing scene. Many people would call it perhaps the greatest, one of the greatest scenes in all the Narnia series. And I love how Lewis, he, he appeals to our imaginations. His picture of Christ is pictured in, an, in a lion named Aslan. And no one had met Aslan yet in this, in this book. And so Lucy, one of the characters, says, is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver, who is... He, I can relate with Mr. Beaver. He was one of those guys who, uh, he, he could be stern and forthright, but yet he was always truthful. And Mr. Beaver said, uh, certainly not. Aslan is a lion. 
the lion, the great lion. And then Susan said, oh, I, I thought he was a man. And then she says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no, no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. And then Lucy says, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is that such a great phrase? Jesus is not safe, but he's good. And isn't that what we want? I, let's be honest. We, we don't want a safe God. We want a good God. Goodness implies just. Goodness implies righteous. But once you come to know this good God, this good king, there's something secure, something safe. And so Peter develops with, for us this morning a Christology, a, a doctrine of Jesus. Turn your Bibles, Acts 2, starting at verse 23. He points the audience that he is speaking to, to Jesus. We will affirm that Christ is the, the, the answer. We as a community will affirm Christ is it. Is he safe? No, but he's good. And we see this picture of Jesus that, that Peter paints for us as, as being the, the salve, the medicine, the, the thing that our hearts ache for, the things that our lives are, de the, 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 the object that our lives are desperate for. He says in verse 21, right? Call upon the Lord and you shall be saved. And then the audience is probably thinking, well, how do we do this? And then he points to Jesus. Look at verse 22. We're going to read through verse 37. And we're going to kind of keep, leave it at a cliffhanger this morning. So, uh, and we'll, we'll finish up the sermon next week. So Peter's five-minute sermon is actually a three-message talk here at Missio Day. So only we can prolong it this long, all right? So verse 22, check this out. Men of Israel... Listen to these words, so right, he just said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what Joel prophesied. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God or endorsed by God to you with mercies, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now that verse, well, there's a lot there. We're going to come back to it. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Circle that. Can I just tell you verses 23, 24? Rich. So good. Since it was impossible to be held in death's grip. Woo! Easter's early this year, folks. This is resurrection, awesome truth, right? For David says of him, so one thing I love about Peter's sermon, number one, it was simple. But secondly, it was scriptural. He goes Joel 2. He's going to go Psalm 16. He's going to go Psalm 110. And then he's almost going to infer Psalm 2. 
Ladies and gentlemen, don't you love messages that are rooted in the Word of God, right? And not your Enneagram, right? That's stupid, all right? The Word is what we need. Just if you've taken the Enneagram, you're not stupid, but there's no substitute for the Word of God. Can I get an amen? Number eights, number six, number threes, whatever. All right, here we go. So he quotes David and says, I was always re- uh, beholding the Lord in my presence. He says, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So he quotes Psalm, Psalm 16, but he leaves off the very last verse. Which says, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding this patriarch David, what he both, when he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter's saying, David is writing hundreds of years before, not about himself, but about the Messiah. Right? David is buried. His body's going to go into decay, but there's one who is not buried who is risen. Woohoo! Talk about that here in a bit. And so, because he was a prophet, and God knew that uh, had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God's raised up again. We are all witnesses. Right? We're all witnesses. This, just, this is fresh. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of, the fa- of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see in here. So Peter's connecting Pentecost to the work, person work of Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 34, For it is not David who ascended into heaven, but himself, he says, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for thy feet. The most quoted Old Testament text in the entire New Testament. That verse right there. I love it. And we're going to talk about why that's important here. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Appealing to the Greeks, he's Lord. Appealing to the Jews, he's the Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. Uh Uh-oh, this is getting heavy. This is not PC. Peter is not, he did not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And then, verse 37, and when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. If I get a little excited, forgive me. We get to talk about Jesus today. We get to talk about Jesus. First thing we get to talk about, Jesus. The only thing we get to talk about, Jesus. Here's, I was thinking about myself as I'm preparing this message. Every Sunday, I preach the same message. You guys realize this? I can't tell you hundreds of sermons I've preached as a college pastor, as a pastor of two churches. I've, I've been preaching for 35 years. I know some of you are like, you must have started when you were three years old. You're only like late 30s, aren't you, Scott? But I've, I've really preached one message, and that's Jesus. I've only preached one, but guess what I get to do every single Sunday? I get to approach it from a different angle. Topic's always the same, but the way we approach it is always different. 
And I sit there and go, we're going to talk about Jesus again. First thing in your point, in your notes that we get to look at, Peter's declaration of Christ. Here it is. He's, he's talking about the Pentecost event, right? There's, there's, there's the, the wind, there's the, the fire, there's the tongues, there's the prophecy. Joel, right? Now all of a sudden God's giving himself to every single believer the gift of the Spirit. Now every single person is mobilized to be a prophet, to communicate the truth of God. And Peter says there's no greater exalted wonderful truth than Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your assignment. It's Jesus. It doesn't get any more complicated than that. Don't we, don't we complicate things? Like We're like, i got to go study philosophy because my coworker just wants to talk philosophical. Stop. You don't need to study philosophy. You need to study Jesus. I need to study world religions. Well, good luck studying all 4,200 of them. I, I wish you luck in that. But guess what? You only need to know Jesus. And, and Peter gives us six essential truths about Jesus that we're going to look at real quick. First is the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Think about it. God left his place in glory to come dwell in our messiness. Not giving up his deity, but adding to his deity humanity. And this is what we call now this, this Jesus incarnate, the God-man. 100% deity, 100% humanity. The perfect representation of God, the perfect substitute and representation for man. And he became flesh, and yet in his flesh knew no sin. That's why he can go to the cross instead of you and I going to the cross. Woohoo! Who's thankful for that substitute right there? The incarnation. God becomes flesh. Philippians 2, write that down. John chapter 1, write that down. These are verses that substantiate the fact that Christ was both God and man. But then the second part is authentication. God's endorsement of this God-man, Jesus, is remarkable ever since the baptism, right? Whom the Father speaks during the baptism, Matthew chapter 3, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased. God now acts through the Son, God the Father acts through the Son to attest to this, His validity. Verification, authentication, endorsement. How does He do it? Notice what Peter says. Three things, miracles, wonders, signs. Write those three things down in your notes. Why are these important? Because miracles point to the power that Jesus did in reversing sin's curse. This is what a miracle is. It's taking the wreckage that sin has brought about and reversing it or restoring it. Think about the miracles Jesus did. Healing a man born blind from birth. Is he not reversing sin's curse? Think about changing, uh, you know, a lame man, a, a deaf person, raising someone from the dead. All the things that we experience in our world that don't make sense, that cause us to question God's goodness, that hurt us, that cause pain. Jesus comes and performs the supernatural power and reverses the order of sin's power, res restoring so God works miracles. Then there's the signs or, or wonders, which is this idea that there's something miraculous among us. Think about the miracles produce awe and astonishment. Weren't people amazed at Jesus, right? Weren't they, weren't they going, certainly there's 
Certainly there's something powerful among us that's not like anything else in the world right now. So Jesus brings miracles, brings this sense of wonder, right? And then there's the signs which ultimately are about spiritual principles that their effect being to uh, embody or signify some sort of spiritual truth. The sign pointed to something. Right, the sign when Jesus turned water into wine. Who doesn't want Jesus to come to the Super Bowl party today? Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be an awesome thing? Right? He turns water into wine by demonstrating something that God is now among us, and the spiritual truth is this: that He can take something common and ter- turn into something very uncommon, take something somewhat natural and and bring something supernatural. And so every sign that Jesus did pointed to a greater spiritual truth. Here's, here's an assignment for you. If you, if you just want for, for grins and giggles to do some sort of spiritual homework this week, study the life of Christ. And when he performs a miracle, what's the greater spiritual truth behind the miracle? What, is, what, is, what does he want you to understand about his kingship? What does he want you to understand about the kingdom? Because Jesus just didn't do signs for the sake of doing signs. Matter of fact, there's these Gnostic writings that came out hundreds of years after Jesus. And one story in the Gnostic Gospels that we don't believe in because they're just, he was in school and the kids were making clay pigeons out of Play-Doh. And Jesus said, hey guys, watch this. And he makes the Play-Doh bird like fly. And, And you sit there and go, that's not in line with the character of Christ. Jesus just didn't do something like he was like a David Blaine magician kind of guy. You know, that's not the kind of, the signs that Jesus did always had intentionality behind them. There was a purpose, and it pointed to his kingship and the kingdom and the restorative nature of God. You guys got that? So that's a big, that's a, that's a lot right there. So you're going to be drinking from a fire hydrant, not just now, but for the rest of this message. So, so think about how God authenticated Christ. Uh, even Nicodemus, John 3, comes to Jesus at night and says to him, No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here is how Jesus' ministry is authenticated, is that he does miracles, brings forth wonder, and the signs point to some kingdom reality. Cool? Point number three, crucifixion. All this led to Jesus being crucified. Look at verse 23. And this is where... Peter introduces uh, some really amazing things. He says, this man, again, incarnation, who was attested by God, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Stop right there. You need to know that the crucifixion of Christ was not an accident. Matter of fact, the Old Testament prophets spoke to this. This is actually why Peter uses so much scripture This is why we as a church community will use so much scripture. All scripture is Christ-focused. Write that down. All scripture is Christ-focused. The Bible always points us to Jesus. Old Testament is a forward focus. New Testament is a backward focus. All culminating in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the apex on which all human history pivots. The, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And so Peter is saying, check out the crucifixion. This man, someone's not a happy camper, pray for little Junie. Okay, there you go. All right. Crucifixion, eyes with me. God planned this from eternity long ago. 
So many people look at the cross and go, well, God surely messed up, didn't he? God surely couldn't keep, keep his plan together. No, the crucifixion was all part of God's plan. Yet, there are people that are culpable for the crucifixion of Christ. Look at verse 23. There's the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but you nailed this, this man, Jesus, to the cross by your hands. You're the ones who put him to death. So now you sit there and go, we got ourselves in a conundrum. Did God crucify Christ? Or did humans crucify Christ? Yes. Is that like every philosophy class? It's like, wait, can it be, does it have to be both? Can it be either or? No, 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 no. There's two things we need to talk about. They're in your notes. There's human, humanity's choice, and then there's God's control. And I think this is important for us to focus on. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, Peter does what no preacher is supposed to do. And you know what that is? Make people feel guilty. I kind of like making people feel guilty. Is there something wrong with that? I'm sorry. He presses into a wound in the culture that hasn't healed. But he's doing it out of love. The crucifixion of Christ was only 50 days old. Remember this. Write that down. We're, we're 50 days post-crucifixion. And Peter comes out and says, hey, you remember Jesus, whom you guys all crucified? And they're all like, what? So not PC. He presses into this wound because he can't, you can't get away from the cross of Christ. This is a definitive moment that was both planned and predetermined by God, but brought about by human volition. Ooh, someone's not happy, are they? When God brings his will to pass, please listen to me on this. When God brings his will to pass, he works in and through by the real decisions of real people. See, when it comes to God's will, he has this thing called a declarative will or a determinative will that will always trump man's desirative will. Men and women desired to get rid of Jesus. And they are fully accountable for the decision they made. And I'm going to tell you right now, humanity's choice is a terrible crime. What men and women did to Jesus was the worst atrocity in all of human history. The most innocent person in the world crucified for, not, for something they didn't do. He did it for us. This is the, most, this is the greatest evil and yet God's control, which is a wonderful victory, point number two, is that God brings about the greatest good from the greatest evil. So while we have free will and we desire things, God's will and determination and what he has declared will come to pass. So you and I have nothing to fear when it comes to God working in our world and not losing control of the world. We don't believe in fatalism. So write down the word fatalism and cross it out. Fatalism says, oh well, what's going to happen is going to happen and, and, there, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. No, no, no. God is in control. Verse 23. He is the one who planned and predetermined this event. Just like God plans and predetermines all events. But that doesn't remove 
human responsibility. I love how A.W. Tozer, so we got Lewis, Bono, and Tozer. This is a good morning. This is a good morning. Tozer, who I don't necessarily agree with theologically on, on some things, I like how he pictures man's responsibility in God's sovereignty. He says, imagine a boat that's traveling from New York City to London, England. That boat is going to go from point A to point B. The plan has already been determined. Now, while on that boat, say we're all passengers. We're all drinking Mai Tais and daiquiris and at the disco and, you know, water, whatever we're going to do on the boat. Some of you are like, I just want to sleep. Okay, you can sleep on the boat. You have the freedom to do whatever you want to do on the boat. But the boat is going to get to its destination no matter what you do on the boat. Thank you, Dr. Tozer. See, God says, yes, I killed Jesus. God says, it was my delight to bruise my son. Isaiah 53, write it down. Isaiah 53 says, God delighted in bruising his son. Why? Because by his stripes, you and I are healed. Why did God go to such great lengths to, to love us and to save us? Well, number one, we could never do it ourselves. Yet it's our sin that put Jesus on that cross. So in a sense, too, who killed Jesus? You did. I did. Th this is part of the politically inc incorrect part of the message that many of us have probably never stopped to consider. Who killed Jesus? You did. I did. And the moment you sit there and go, no, I didn't, you don't understand the gospel. God brings about the greatest evil, the son, the perfect, blameless, spotless lamb of God being sacrificed for himself? No. For sin-riddled, fallen, rebellious, obstinate, disobedient people of whom I'm the chief of sinners. He dies on a cross for me but all because it's God's great delight to bruise him for, for me. Are you kidding me? Ladies and gentlemen, my sin put him on that cross. But my God took great delight in bruising his son so that you and I can have our unrighteousness removed and given righteousness from a Savior who loves us unconditionally. That's the gospel. Here's the beauty. God takes our terrible crimes and he will come in and bring about some sort of wonderful victory. The cross, the tomb, the resurrection being the greatest illustration of this in all of human history. The resurrection, point number four. We're going we're gonna to continue this. Because we don't worship an, a, a dead Messiah. 
We don't worship a, a dead religious leader. Uh, even Peter, quoting Psalm 16, says, you can go to the tomb, there's no body there. This is why there's a reference to Psalm 16, and, and I, I think we have Psalm 16 up on the screen. Here it is, right, directly from, from the hand of David, who obviously is not writing about himself. Here's what David delighted in. In his body was the promise of one who would occupy the throne for eternity. He was a small K king. He's writing about a future king, capital K, Jesus. Check this out. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol and let your Holy One see corruption. See, this is where you know David's not writing about himself because David's tomb is occupied by David. And guess what happens when people are buried? They become worm food. Write that down in your notes, worm food. Just, just, just be reminded of your mortality. He is popping up daisies because he's buried. Peter says, let's go to the tomb. But there's one tomb where the one who inhabited that tomb is no longer there. God had not abandoned the son to Hades, nor is the son in his body undergoing decay. He is risen. And this is what's so great about the final part of this verse. You make known to me the path of life. The path of life always goes through Jesus. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That last phrase is the one Peter leaves out. Because it is up to you now to accept or reject this risen king. Who for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, endured the cross. So Jesus undergoes suffering so that you can experience salvation. He experiences grief so you can experience God's goodness. You don't have to experience ultimate pain of you dying in your sins. There's someone who's taking the sins for you. So now through him and his suffering, you can experience God's pleasures forevermore. And this is what the son who is at the right hand of the father as we speak is, is divvying out to his people. There is no pleasure there's no satisfaction, there's no contentment apart from Jesus Christ. And let me, let me bring this full circle to what we were just talking about when it comes to our responsibility and God's sovereignty. That means that there is nothing going on in your life as a believer that God is not in control of. And, and I want to say something that is so important because Peter is declaring to this group of people that, you know, they're probably sitting there going, you know, again, resurrection of Christ. This is fresh news. Everyone knows the person Jesus. Everyone knows what Jesus was doing. Everyone knows that he was a miracle worker. Everyone knows he was crucified. Everyone knows he was buried. Everyone knows that there's a missing body. Right? And it would have been easy for people to go, no, 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 you guys went to the wrong tomb. Everyone there would be like, no, no, no I'll take you to the right tomb. He's not there. It's not a hoax. Someone didn't steal the body because you know what the Romans could have done? They could have produced the body and, and quelled Christianity right from the start. The Jews weren't going to hide the body because these are men and women who deliberately brought about a hoax where they hid the body of Jesus and yet died the, the deaths they died defending a truth they knew to be a lie. That doesn't make sense. 
See, what, what Peter's saying here is that it was impossible for death to hold Jesus. However tempting it is to run along, along the lines of all these philosophical thoughts, right, when evil things happen, God is in control of all things. And the, those who ought to be most secure are those who are loved by him, who understands, who understand redemption. I mean, let's just, let's, let's just oh, take a breather. Super Bowl. I hear, is it, is it today? <laughs> of course it's today. Two teams in the Super Bowl that I know probably no one in this room likes, right, because your dog's not in the race. Uh, but go Bengals. I always go for the underdog. But here's the thing. No one would have ever predicted the Bengals or the Rams getting to the Super Bowl. You know why? Because preseason, you're looking at, you know, well, they've got this quarterback. They've got this, you know, running back. They've got this defensive tech. You know, and we're all, like, scripted. And then all of a sudden the season starts, and all of a sudden we're like, oh. Ooh, these guys are appearing, right? And an entire season, right, we're all trying to predict who's going, who's not. Like, I thought the Cowboys, yeah, those dreams were shattered. I, since I gave up, I feel a whole lot better. So uh, everyone's thinking, Cardinals, yeah, and they just, you know. And all of a sudden, everyone on talk radio right now is like, who would have ever guessed the Bengals and the Rams, right? It just shows you how limited our understanding is. Did God know the Bengals and the Rams were going to go to the Super Bowl? Yes. Does it matter in time and eternity who's in the Super Bowl? No. But I'm going to tell you this, God knew. And isn't it just like a Super Bowl game to remind us that you can go through life and you can make the best predictions, you can make the best guesses, and, and even kind of pivot on some of those things, you know, pre, you know, middle of the season, end of the season, playoffs. But no one would have thought we would have arrived with this kind of Super Bowl setup. But guess what? God knew. God knew. And here's the thing when it comes to us as the people of God. Every single day, you're trying to make sense of your life. You don't know what tomorrow holds. But you know there's a God who's sovereignly in control of all things. Amen? Here's what I don't want you to believe. Humanity has this general statement that we tend to throw on stuff. And I'm saying this is, this is for believers and unbelievers. The notion that everything will turn out for the best is a fallacy. Let me clarify this. The notion that everything will turn out for the best is, is a fallacy. Because that's not true for someone who doesn't know God. It will only turn out best for those who are known and loved by God. Romans 8, 28. For God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The person that doesn't know God, things are not on a trajectory towards getting better. Someone who doesn't know God is on a trajectory of things only getting worse. You and I have Christ. And we are people who ought to have the most hope. Because as sure as death could not hold Jesus in the grave, Sure is God's predetermined plan and will for his own son has come to pass. How much more does he have your future in mind and that you ought to be brimming with hope above, above any hope? Because we have God as our father. This is the encouragement to us today as believers in Christ. And it's this, is that some of you may be facing a difficult day tomorrow. 
Some of you might be facing a difficult week. Some of you may be facing a difficult month. And I don't know what it is, but, you know, there's this longing to just kind of run away, escape, and, and perhaps be fatalistic in our mentality. Here's the good news. God is in this. God is working. He's working in this universe. He's working in this world. He's working in our country. He's working in our state. How far can we go? He's working in your heart. And here's what God has promised. He's planned this. He's planned your life. He knows about it from eternity past. And he, you have no need to fear for one minute that he is going to leave you or forsake you. Because he's got you. And death has lost its grip, not just on Christ, the forerunner and perfecter of your faith, but on you. This means something objectively, this means something subjectively. Objectively is this, Christ has paid our debt. Can you just write that down? Debt paid. Arrow, Jesus, exclamation point. This is how I write things in my notes. Debt paid. That's the objective reality. Subjectively, what we need to perhaps feel is that death no longer holds sway over our lives. This is why Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 taunts death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I'm like, Paul. Like going elementary school level, like you—you you have no. Aren't we all haunted by the specter of death? But you need not fear it, because it could not hold its grip over Jesus, and in Christ, therefore, you have no reason to fear it, because it holds no sway or grip over you. And all God's people said, "What are you worried about?" While God doesn't care about Super Bowls. And Super Bowl winners, he cares about those whom from eternity past has destined to be saved in his son, Jesus Christ. And just as he was pleased to bruise his son, he was pleased to bruise his son so that he can have you with him forever. And that makes me want to bawl my eyes out. Like my wife does every Sunday morning. She's like, I'm going to ball. You just know it's coming. She's like, I'm going to try not to. Forget it. Just let the, flood, the floodgates open, right? Eternal pleasures are ours because of Jesus, right? Without Jesus, you know, life is an onion. You peel away these layers, hoping to get to something concrete, and guess what's at the center of an onion? Nothing. You ever found this out to be true as you're getting through all the tears, right? Like you're peeling this onion, and it's like, there's nothing there. Life without Christ is an onion. Life with Jesus is a treasure chest that might look all rough and hewn from the outside, but you open it up, and it's like, what? And he says, in my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Eternal pleasures we receive from God the Father have passed through and been enriched by the nail-pierced and glorified hands of our Savior. C.S. Lewis says this, the best fruits are plucked for each by some hand that is not his own. 
you have been given the fruit of salvation. And the reason it's so precious is because you could have never picked that fruit yourself. Jesus does it for us. How sweet it is to be loved by you. I just want to go into song right now. Can I get a Kleenex from somebody? Thanks, babe. Someone came to rescue last week and you weren't here. Taylor, yay! Oh, you did? Yeah, I took the whole, I took the whole package from you. So. Ascension, point number, I think it's five. So, oh, bro, Helio, thank you, my friend. Kisses. All right. Uh, no, I said bro, Helio. You're bro, Helio. He's bro, Helio. All right. Ascension. So notice he says, so th- the bulk of it, it's all right, girl. I love you. Um, you have incarnation. You have uh, uh, authentication. You have crucifixion. You have resurrection. But he's ascended. Again, another thing he's, he, that, that everyone's a witness to, right? And then he quotes Psalm 110.1. Because the ascension of Christ is the coronation of, of the king. He takes his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, a place of, and you're going to want to write this phrase down, cosmic authority. Cosmic authority, right? More powerful than any president. More powerful than any king. More powerful than any governor. More powerful than any emperor. There is this God who has ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is currently making all his enemies a footstool under his feet. This is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Quoted by Jesus, quoted by the early church. Why? Because it reminds us that there's no such thing as opposition against the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, continually making intercession for us. And this is why we can walk in courage and confidence and boldness. This is why Peter can preach an un-PC message and say, you killed Jesus. I mean, who gets away with this? Someone who has witnessed the risen Savior. Someone who has realized that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Someone who has cosmic authority and says, you either bow to the king out of gratitude or you bow to the king because you're forced to bow. This is what the ascension tells us because his ascension silences all opposition. See, God doesn't just call the Son King. He calls Him King of Kings. He doesn't just call Him Lord. He calls Him Lord of Lords. Is this the King that you have come to believe in and love? Because the last point is this, His glorification. The glorification is that He will be glorified forever. Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The question is, will you do it because you want to do it or will you do it because you're going to be forced to do it? Peter doesn't try to domesticate Jesus. We don't want to domesticate Jesus. I mean, maybe we do. Have you ever thought about how people want Jesus and they want to create kind of Jesus in their own image? I, I, I wrote this down, and I want to read this. So, we like Jesus to the extent he doesn't demand too much of us, but we only love Jesus to the extent that we're surrendered everything to him. Right? We all want a Messiah we like, but let's be honest, sometimes we have a Messiah we don't love. You want to know why? Because we haven't surrendered it all. Bono. I love you too. The band, not, I mean, I love you too, but I love the band, you too. 
Bono is one of those thinkers that um, for a rock star communicates a lot of good spiritual truth. Um, there's a book called Bono on Bono, and uh, he talks about his, his spirituality, and he talks about his, his belief in the lordship of Jesus Christ, that Jesus sacrificed himself for his sins. He believes in Jesus as this um, savior who atones for the sins of the world. Here's what Bono says. I'm going to quote. Bono says, uh, Jesus went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. Let me just stop. Jesus went around and he did good things. And people love the good things that Jesus did, especially if it benefited you. Let's be honest. Like, we're all like, man, I could use a sandwich right now. Where's Jesus? Like, God, give me a sandwich. I could really use some more wine. Can you turn this water into wine? Yeah, bing, right? But the moment Jesus started calling himself God, people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's tone that down a bit. We like you when you do good things for us, but when you start making claims like you're the Messiah, we're, we're getting into issues. Can you just keep that down? And Jesus is like, here's why Jesus never relegates himself to what you want. He always shows himself to be who he truly is. Bono continues. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So either, in my view, he was the son of God or he was nuts. Forget rock and roll Messiah complexes. I mean Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that the whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. That's a nutcase. I just, I just don't believe it. Look, the secular response to Christ is always like this. He's a great prophet. He's a very interesting guy. He, they say a lot of things like he's a great prophet along the lines of Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. So you know what Bono does here? He actually quotes Lewis. Now, can we get the best of both worlds in one thing? Lewis was the one that argued the Lord, uh, Lord liar lunatic. So if you ever want to research Lewis on this, he's the one who 80 years ago made this famous. Either Jesus was Lord or he was a liar, he's a lunatic. Bono channels Lewis and says, he doesn't let you off that easy. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm, not, I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. This is the words of Bono. A, the people say, no, 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 please just be a prophet. Prophet we can take. You're just being a bit eccentric, right? We've had John the Baptist eating locust wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word, Messiah word, right? Because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he says, and that was the point. Everyone starts aiming to get rid of a God who demands your life from you. And I can't help but think that God, whether you're a believer or not, is just continuing to remind us of, of you give him your all. He's a God who demands your soul. He's a God who demands your mind. He, he's a God who demands your hearts. This is why we go to the second point. We're going to continue to tease this out here a bit. Second point is this, the, the declaration of charges. Right? Peter, he's already said, he's going to say it twice. You crucified Jesus, verse 23. And then in verse 36, you crucified Jesus. Right? So he bookends this message with stuff that pastors shouldn't say. You crucified the Son of God. Here's the declaration of charges. 
right? And here's what happens. And this is what God's word does. God's word brings about conviction. And it's usually going to bring about conviction in two areas. You ready for this? The reality of Christ's lordship, and secondly, the weight of my sin. The word convicts. As a pastor, I am continuously discouraged by the, the famine of the word of God in our land. And I'm just, I'm, I'm quoting Amos's words. There's a famine of the word of God in the land. And I think because there's a famine of word of God in the land, there's a, there's a famine of conviction that happens in our lives. Because if the word of God is absent, conviction will be absent. But when the word of God is communicated, when it is explored, when it is, when it is, is poured over, it's going to bring about two things. You're going to understand you're not Lord. Christ is Lord. Right? This is why the people are in such anguish and saying, what do we do? Because Peter has elevated the Messiah. And he's elevated the Messiah to a degree that the people have not wanted him relegated to. They rather have this guy who gives out free sandwiches and turns water into wine and, and, and kisses babies and heals old people. And that's the kind of domesticated Savior we want. And Peter says, that's not the kind of Savior he is. Yes, he can do those things, but he's not a God who does things. He is a God who is. He is Lord. And his lordship has this channel by which he demonstrates these powerful things. You don't worship the things he does. You worship him. You don't worship the gifts he gives you. You worship the giver of the gifts. Why? Because he's the sovereign Lord. So, so two truths are required for deep conviction to happen. There's got to be this reality of Christ's lordship. And let me just get, you don't make Christ Lord. I have heard too many men and women say, just make Jesus Lord of your life. You don't make, he is Lord. You come into submission of this truth, right? You come into this reality. You come into his presence, right? It's not like, well, today, today, I'm just going to flip the switch and make him Lord. No, no, he is. And the moment you realize he is Lord and you are not, you're on your knees. And you're broken. Because there's a second part to this, and that's it's the weight of my sin. And the weight of my sin tells me I killed Jesus. And the weight of my sin says I deserve death. And the weight of my sin says that God shouldn't love me. And the weight of my sin, sin says he would be just to condemn me to eternity apart from him. My sin communicates this to me. But when you're broken and you're, and you're, you've fallen before the feet of, of the Lord, the meeting of his lordship in your sin, that's where conviction happens. And it leads into Pleasures forevermore. Because you realize 
I can't do anything. Let's just be honest. I can't do, I can't do, I can't do nothing. Can I say it like that? No, I can't. Well, I'm going to. You bring nothing to the table to be loved by God. You're in his world. You're breathing his air. You're drinking his water. You're occupying the skin that he has gifted you with. You're making a, a living at a job that he provided for you. You are only sustained last night while you slept to be here this morning because God has shown himself to be good to you. The weight of your sin says you are deserving of death. The, but the reality of Christ's lordship is he's, he stepped in and swallowed death up in victory so that those who are now in him have nothing to fear but only have pleasures forevermore. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this is amazing, right? This is, this is why there, there's this need to, to repent. There's this need to, 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 to call out like the people do. Look at verse 37. What shall we do? See, if there's no piercing of the heart, it's not, it's not conversion. If there's no cutting to the heart, there's no, there's no change. You know who knows what it means to be pierced to the heart? Peter. Who in that garden, who in that, in that courtyard, denied Jesus three times, and it says he, he looked upon Jesus' face. It was almost like that moment where he realizes he has betrayed the Lord, and he's cut to the heart. He's pierced to the heart. Because he realizes what he's done. Then and only then did he feel the weight of his sin. And did he understand the, the magnitude of Christ's lordship. And from that moment on, when Jesus came and restored Peter, this guy was, you couldn't stop him. Right? Because true conversion, conviction happened. And set him on a life of, of turning the world upside down. Right? Peter knows what that anguish feels like. These people know what that anguish feels like. What shall we do? Right? We were wrong about Jesus and we're wrong about ourselves. That's sin. That is the, that is the birth of just monstrous, ugly things. If you don't understand who Jesus is and you don't understand who you are, you're not going to get anything right. right? Do, do you feel the anguish of these people? Perhaps like you've never felt before, right? Have you ever felt the, the, the burden of your sin crush your spirit like this? So now the question is, what do we do? Well, we're going to talk about this more next week. But, but Peter lays out a plan. But let me close with this. Last point. There's the declaration of compassion. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Back to verse 21. Remember, we, we, we covered that already, but we got to go back to it. And we got to go back to it time and time and time again, right? He says in verse 21, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John calls this belief. Write down that word, belief. Because that's all that is required. 
And surely someone's sitting here in this room this morning right now saying, it can't be that simple. Because let me remind you, chapter 2, Acts, verse 5, these are devout men and women. Being a devout person can ruin you. Being a religious person can ruin you. May I say, being a Christian can ruin you. Let me, let me unpack this. Bono says, religion can be the enemy of God. Two things. There's a danger in being devout. Secondly, there's the delight in being destitute. Real quick, belief is all that's required because notice the word, and here's the dangerous word, verse 37. What shall we do? Circle that word, do. It's been done. There's, it's, it's finished. From Rohelio, not Brohelio. What shall we do? You don't do anything. That's the problem. Right? The danger in being devout is this. We come to Jesus, we come to God, and we go, do you want me to pray more? Do, do you want me to serve more? Do you want me to give more? And we, we approach it with this performance mentality like, I've got to do something. And, and Jesus says, sit still. Stop. I don't want you to be religious. I don't want you to be devout. Jesus always had the worst problems with religious devout people. And religious and devout people have always had the biggest problem with God. Because mere belief sounds too simple, doesn't it? Can I just tell you right now, there are professing Christians in this room this morning who need Jesus. They've heard, but they haven't heard. It is possible to be a respectable, well-taught, moral sinner. Too many people in our churches today are respectable, well-taught, moral sinners. I get to speak to high school students in about 10 days on this topic. That we believe in this morally therapeutic deist. That we're, we're morally therapeutic, like God is this God who's into behavior modification. The answer is never, what do we do? Right? This is why, why we've got to be careful. Jesus taught this parable called the parable of the tares. He says, be careful because the wheat and the, and the weeds grow up at the same time, and there's, there's times when they look a lot alike. Give it time, you're going to be able to see what's true and what's false, what's, what's genuine, what's not genuine. Right? we got to be careful. This, but, but the message needs to be clear in that if you're here and you're a respectable, well-taught, moral sinner, it's not your behavior that's going to save you. You, you, need, to be, you need to be broken. Uh, Jesus calls it poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God broken, bringing nothing. Isaiah 55, naked and poor you come. 
to God. And what you get is that he lavishes the bounty of his love and pleasures upon you forevermore. Not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So there's a delight in being destitute. We'll talk about this more next week. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When was the last time you associated your relationship with the Lord with terms like brokenness? Poverty, destitute. And yet, until you realize how empty you really are, you'll never receive the fullness of all that Christ is. And all God's people said, do I hear a rewind on that? Until you realize how spiritually empty you are, you'll never realize how full Jesus is for you. I think that's how I said it. Let's stand, let's pray. Mm. Lord, thank you that you're a God who oftentimes does the unthinkable, who oftentimes does the unimaginable, I would be safe to say who always does what is unpredictable. You continue to get our attention time and time again. You are leveraging each and every day to remind us that we are nothing without you. And yet the message of the gospel is truly good news to those who have been broken and who have recognized their spiritual poverty that you come to give life and give it abundantly. I pray that every single man, woman in this room would would know this in their hearts. That they would know the pleasures that are in your right hand forevermore. That there is a brokenness that we all arrive at where we truly see the beauty of Christ's lordship. And we know we don't bring anything but you, God, in your infinite just wisdom and your display of grace and mercy, give us all that we'd ever ask for, imagine, or need. May we live in this place of spiritual contentment. May we know that Jesus is all that we ever will need. And with Christ, we are men and women of hope. Great hope. Because there's a great God who's supervising our lives like nothing we could ever comprehend. So, Father, thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for the the beautiful ministry of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the salvation that the Spirit has brought upon us. May we live in it. May we dwell in it. May we revel in it. May we celebrate it. May we communicate it to all that we come in contact with. For your glory, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Have a great day. See you soon, all right? Volunteer lunch, 1230. If you're a volunteer, come on back.